Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app, and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, can I please have your attention? Well, greetings, dear Remnantitos out there. Uh, Jonah Goldberg uh, is not here because he is, I suppose, nibbling on sponge cake, watching the sun bake. Uh, but we are here. Uh, I am Chris Steyerwalt, and this is uh, The Remnant from The Dispatch and Dispatch Media. And I wonder if our guest today ever tires of being right. I wonder if he becomes, as Donald Trump said, uh, you'll win so much you'll get tired of winning. And um, our guest today, Rui Teixeira, um, has been powerfully, profoundly right about the challenges facing uh, the Democratic Party, his party, as they have tried to navigate uh, what we will call, I think I, I called in uh, my dispatch column this week, the Kardashian-Trumpian era uh, of post-credibility uh, celebrity America. Rui, who is, uh, among many other things, uh, the author of the excellent and useful new book, Where Have All the Democrats Gone? His substack is Liberal Patriot. It is great. It is should be required reading for anybody who wants to understand what's going on. And he is uh, my esteemed colleague at the American Enterprise Institute. Rui, welcome. Hey, Chris. It's always great to be here with you and on the remnants. So, by God, let's get to it. So, basically, what I observe is that the Republican Party has been having a nervous breakdown for eight or 10 years. And you see this massive lane open up for Democrats, right? You see this huge, what, what should be this era of massive opportunity for Democrats. And Democrats basically unable to convert. Um, they, they've been in the red zone, uh, ready to score for so long but can't manage to put together a coalition um, that works and is reliable. And is my diagnosis fundamentally correct? Yes. No, I, I believe that's correct. I, I agree, of course, about the dysfunctional nature of today's Republican Party. It's many, many serious liabilities. It's, you know, obviously changed in many important ways. You know, there's a strength there in terms of being more appealing to working class voters, but there's a lot of weaknesses there that really do put a ceiling on their ability to win elections and form a coalition. So, as you say, you would think in that situation, the Democrats would be would be running the table. I mean, this is a party that is, the Republicans are a party that has basically managed to give themselves over 
to Donald Trump and some of the crazier elements of their own coalition. So given that a lot of people really don't like Trump and a lot of people really don't like crazy, uh, like, what's the deal? Why can't they do any better? And uh, I think the interesting thing here, and I get a lot of this, is a lot of Democrats do not see the problem. Mm -hmm. Right? It's kind of like, you know, I see this big opportunity. You see this big opportunity. I see a wide open lane to becoming a dominant party, the normie voter party of America, as it were. And it's not happening, but that's not the way they see it. I mean, they're, they, as far as they're concerned, they're winning and they're, they're not getting tired of winning um, because, I mean, they say, look at, the, look, look at the tape, right? Okay, 2018, the Democrats gain over 40 House seats. They come roaring back after 2016. 2020, Biden wins the election. He is president of these United States. 2022, everybody thinks the Republicans are going to get their clock. Republicans are going to clean the Democrats' clock. They don't. Democrats far outperform uh, underlying expectations. They don't lose the Senate. They, uh, you know, they barely lose the House. Right? They they win. They do good in governors and special legislative legislative elections. And then in twenty twenty three, they win a lot of special elections. They're doing great. Um, you know, the abortion wind is abortion rights wind is at their back. So as far as a lot of those people are concerned, the Democrats. You know, it's kind of like we got we got it locked, man. I mean, there's there's no need to really change much at all. Um, and if we can't if we aren't beating the Republicans decisively right now in the polls, that's a problem of the polls. The people we need will come back home. And if it wasn't, you know, we do have this problem with all this media misinformation, the conservative bubble, um, the lies, the 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 things that the nefarious things the other side are doing, they're duping the honest workers and peasants of America. Um, that's why the polls don't show us cleaning up right now. And did we mention that the economy is doing great and it's going to do better? And all of this, all of these problems will disappear by November 2024. So, um, you know, I'm just telling you my, you know, sort of my feedback from Democrat land is, I see this opportunity. You see this opportunity. Uh, <laughs> they uh, they think that may, they may see an opportunity there, but they uh, interpret it as a, as an opportunity that is currently being taken advantage of. They're on the cusp of a great victory, a great era, and we're already seeing the green shoots of that era today. So, do you think that's fair, Chris? Am I overstating? Uh, what you might call the complacency of the Democrats in light of this situation and the ability to interpret seemingly everything as as telling a unified story of of uh, you know that is sort of anti any kind of doom and gloom and certainly any need to change the basic approach of the party. Uh, I think that the unwillingness of partisans, especially ideological partisans to see the liabilities in their own beliefs is profound. And we often hear uh, when uh, a candidate loses, uh, uh, ideological partisans say it is because they did not sell the right message. Uh, and when they win, they say, well, it, it must have been the message. Um, for Democrats, the gift of Donald Trump in cycle after cycle, and you very correctly identify 
the unforced error for Republicans in 2022 with goofball candidates uh, that that snatched, you know, not defeat, but disappointment from the jaws of victory. Um, you know, we're recording this uh, today, uh, the results of a special election uh, in New York's third congressional district uh, will be out by the time people hear this. But it's easy to imagine how just exactly the phenomenon that you described could take place uh, if Democrats reclaim that seat that George Santos won in 2022, even though it's a D plus eight or seven district, even though it's a Democratic district, that if they win, they'll say, see, the polls say that we're losing. The polls say that we're bad, but it just continues to work. So the, uh, as, 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 uh, my old daddy used to say about, uh, rich kids, uh, born on third base, thought he hit a triple. Um, I want to read, uh, this passage from, uh, your Substack. Um, you, you succinctly lay out the persistent polling deficit, uh, that, uh, the incumbent democratic president is facing. Um, and you say in light of these data, there are two basic choices for Biden and the Democrats concentrate on voter mobilization to make up these deficits or concentrate on reducing these deficits through persuasion. Naturally, these approaches are not mutually exclusive, but it's important which one gets the greater weight. And I think we know which one so far Democrats have chosen, right? Uh, So far, it seems like the Biden campaign and Democrats generally are a lot more interested in mobilizing the base than they are in trying to persuade the persuadables. Is that right? I think that's fair. I mean, Chris, need I remind you, democracy is on the ballot. You know, that's all you need to know. Donald Trump is a criminal. He should be taken off the ballot if possible. Uh, And we must preserve democracy at all costs. And did we mention abortion rights? Now, these are, you know, (laughs) these are issues that certainly uh, should be part of the democratic repertoire in this coming election. But the fact of the matter is they're not top of mind and super salient or the most salient issues for a ton of voters out there who the Democrats need to reach, particularly people who aren't liberal college educated voters in areas like, you know, we live in. So uh, that is, um, you know, sort of the default setting at this point of the Democratic Party. And they do really have a hard time dealing with the fact that there are tons of voters out there, particularly working class voters, who just don't think about the world in the same way, don't look at Trump the same way, don't see, you know, don't think it's the Weimar Republic 1932, right? I mean, they're just, that's not the world they live in. They live in a world where the groceries are more expensive, uh, you know, they're, they're struggling uh, in a day-to-day sense, they're not satisfied with how the Biden economy is gone, and they worry the Democrats don't give a, a hoot about the immigration problem. They don't give a hoot about crime. They, they're more concerned with their boutique issues around race and gender and a lot of other crazy stuff they barely understand, and they certainly don't even understand the language in which Democrats used to talk about it. So there's a lot of obvious vulnerabilities here. When poll after poll shows you so far behind, as you mentioned, and a lot of the most salient issues to these voters, again, the logical course should be to try to reduce that deficit, convince people you can be tough on the border, convince people you care most of all about their cost of living and how they can get by 
uh, you know, sort of in a more comfortable way. And you speak to those things. You talk about them incessantly. But if your view is what we need to do is mobilize the currently existing Democratic base, which is increasingly less working class voters and more college educated suburbanites, say, you, you put the emphasis on a different thing. You talk incessantly about democracies on the ballot. You talk about abortion rights. You talk about all the ways in which Trump and the Republicans are fundamentally culturally out of sync with where you're coming from and your priorities and what your next door college educated neighbor thinks about the world. So that's that's the default approach of the Democrats. And yet, Chris, as we look at the, <laughs> maybe polls aren't perfect. Maybe polls don't obviously predict entirely at this point what will happen in 2024. But for God's sake, look at where we are. Donald Trump's ahead by maybe a couple of points. And the national average at this point in 2020, Biden was ahead by five points. Uh, the Democrats are doing terribly among non-white voters. You get 15 to 20% of black voters saying the vote for Trump. You get margins among Hispanics that are in the single digits when they won them by 23 points in, uh, in 2020. Uh, if you look at working class voters, who are the majority of voters in this country, about two thirds of eligibles, three fifths of the people who will probably show up in 2024, the Democrats are losing them by like 15 points. They lost them by four points in 2020. And this does not work as political arithmetic, and that's a big part of the reason why why Biden is behind right now. So, yeah, there's a there's a lot of uh, motivated reasoning going on here in terms of how Democrats are digesting that data and a, a remarkable comfort level with a situation that shouldn't be comfortable. We will descend in, in the Jesuitical terms. We will descend into the particular uh, on these matters. But first, I want I want to snap out. I want to pull back. And I want to uh, talk in in big terms. Ah, oh, the big picture, eh? <laughs> the big picture. You wrote uh, one of the most influential books. You co-authored one of the most influential books uh, in politics in the 21st century that came out in 2002, The Emerging Democratic Majority. Uh, and now your new book, <laughs> uh, Where Have All the Democrats Gone? What changed in the American electorate? How did... Other than, so we, we've talked a little bit about how Democrats have changed. Mm -hmm. What changed in the electorate in the intervening two decades? How, how, is, how is the American electorate different in that time? Well, in terms of strict demographics, I mean, I think it's really gone along the lines that we outlined in the book. You do have more non-white voters. You have a decreasing share of um, white working class or non-college voters. You have an increasing share of college-educated voters. Um, you have the more dynamic metropolitan areas of the country. You see their electoral weight increasing. All those things happen. The problem was not that. The problem was less the nose-counting aspect of how the electorate changed over time. It's what happened with those noses, so to speak. As we argued in the emerging Democratic majority, this sort of new electorate that's emerging that we described that provided a basis potentially for the Democrats to form a durable majority, it depended, among other things, in keeping a strong share of the white non-college vote. Because even though they're declining as a share of voters, uh, you, I mean, they were still massive and they were really big in a lot of important states. 
So we thought, ah, you keep 40% of the white working class vote overall, maybe 45 and like uh, Midwest states where they loom so large. And you got yourself a pretty, pretty tough, you know, pretty uh, impressive coalition. Uh, however, that did not happen. And that's really, you know, sort of point number one and how the electorate changed in a way that was not good for the Democrats. Uh, by, you know, Obama actually did pretty well in 2008, but ever since then, it's gone increasingly south for the Democrats, culminating in 2016, when Donald Trump does so well among white working class voters, particularly in the Midwest, he actually becomes president of these United States. And Democrats, after 2012, when Obama got elected for a second time, they basically processed that as, well, the coalition of the ascendant is here. The rising American electric rules and it will rule increasingly as the days go by. So there's really no need to worry too much about these other type of voters who are you know, culturally uncomfortable with us, whose priorities are not the same as the people who live in New York and Seattle and Chicago. Uh, that turned out to be a disastrous point of view and a disastrous way to sum up that election. And as I say, that's how we got Donald Trump. The other important thing that's happening, though, and this was totally unexpected by Democrats, is that if you look at the non-white population, you look at blacks and particularly Hispanics, the theory of the merging democratic majority as bowdlerized by the, you know, sort of the democratic establishment and the activists was that, you know, the more non-whites you have, the more, the better Democrats will do. It's just as simple as that. It's like automatic, basically. Demographics are destiny. The problem is what happens if the fewer of those voters vote for you? That cancels out the effect of having more of them. And that's exactly what we saw, uh, particularly in 2020. It became very obvious when Democrats' support among, for example, Hispanic white working, uh, working class voters dropped by about 20 points. And this was after four years of Donald Trump. That wasn't supposed to happen. That was not supposed to happen, but it did. And we're still seeing the same thing in the polls today. The non-white voters, particularly non-white working class voters, are becoming increasingly reluctant to declare their support for the Democrats and are becoming increasingly willing to vote for the uh, Republicans. Okay, let's take a second to hear from our sponsor. Do you owe back taxes? Pandemic relief is over now. Along with hiring thousands of new agents and field officers, the IRS has kicked off 2024 by sending over 5 million pay-up letters to those who have unfiled tax returns or balances owed. Don't waive your rights and speak with the IRS on your own. They are not your friends. Tax Network USA, a trusted tax relief firm, has saved over $1 billion in back taxes for their client, and they can help you secure the best deal possible. Whether you owe $10,000 or $10 million, they can help you. Whether it's business or personal taxes, even if you have the means to pay or you're on a fixed income, they can help finally resolve your tax burdens once and for all. So call 1-800-245-6000 for a private free consultation or visit TNUSA.com slash remnant. That's TNUSA.com slash remnant. Okay, so let's take a second to hear from our sponsor, Aura Frames. Longtime listeners know I'm a big fan of Aura Frames. I've gotten them as gifts. I've given them as gifts. I sent my daughter back to college with one so she could look at many, many, many pictures of her cat and I guess her 
parents as well. So if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life, Aura frames are a beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. I can attest, it is very easy to use, very intuitive. You don't have to read a lot of documentation. And it's just like you load the app and it says, what pictures do you want in your frame? And you put them in your frame and you can change them and you can set the settings to whatever you want for how long the pictures stay there. It's pretty idiot proof. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's AuraFrames.com. A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use the promo code REMNANT at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. There seems to me to be a squeeze play going on for Democrats. So uh, as you were talking about, they're leaving a lot of money on the table with working class voters. Now, there are some cultural shifts. There are some uh, partisan sorting geographical shifts that work against Democrats. Oklahoma, West Virginia, Kentucky, places like this are not coming back anytime soon. And mm-hmm. there's the, the policies don't matter. Brand and party identification uh, matter. Um, but there's certainly a, in a lot of places. You went to college in Michigan and uh, Wisconsin. There's tons of working class voters, uh, white, non-white, uh, in those states that Democrats are not getting. But it strikes me that there's another squeeze. There's there's another force on the other side. I think of these as Yunkin Biden voters or Sununu uh, Biden voters. These are also college-educated voters. They're also affluent voters. They're typically suburbanites. And they would naturally gravitate toward Republican policies, but are not, they're not comfortable with Donald Trump. A lot of these are women. Uh, they're not comfortable with Donald Trump, and they're not comfortable with the direction of the Republican Party. But Democrats don't seem able to bring the, the, the Nikki Haley-facing uh, sort of moderate suburbanite into their fold for those same reasons that you described because of um, the strong beliefs on these uh, boutique issues. They can't quite build out the the full um, sort of Eisenhower uh, coalition of non-white voters and affluent uh, upwardly mobile suburbanites. Is that right? Yeah, I think that I think that's right. And I think that um, the comforting thing there here for the Democrats or what they, they grasp onto is those Biden Youngkin voters, they're still going to vote for Biden. So in a way, you could think about this as the Biden squeak through coalition. That seems to be the coalition that they're satisfied with in a, in a sense. And certainly that's the revealed preference. Um we can get just enough of those suburbanites. We can sort of keep our losses down to like, you know, a, simply a thundering defeat among working class voters. And if we do that, Biden will squeak through. 
we'll we'll keep our nose above the water. Uh, but yes, I think it's absolutely correct, Chris. They're not consolidating those voters. They're not forming a coalition that's going to have any durability. And the moment that Republicans, you know, sort of have a somewhat different face, a somewhat different approach, Trump gets out of the picture to some extent. Uh, you have not consolidated those voters. Those voters can easily return back to a party that could make them feel more comfortable than the current Trump Republican Party does. So one way uh, U of Levin and I put it is this is politics without winners, right? I mean, we're, we're really fighting around the 50-yard line of American politics. It, it seesaws back and forth across all the different houses of Congress and the presidency. Um, but nobody's really got the upper hand. No one can really push the opposing team deep back into their own territory, right? Um, to, to extend the analogy. So Democrats do not have that in their, you know, sort of their playbook. This is what it should be about. We should be, be maximizing support. We should be compromising in a lot of different ways that is going to bring, consolidate more of these people in our camp and bring more persuadable voters, you know, consolidate them behind the democratic approach. We're going to make as many people as possible feel as comfortable as possible. <laughs> uh, so we're not going to have just the Biden squeak through coalition. We're going to have the Biden and democratic dominant victory coalition. You know, in an odd sort of way, sometimes I wonder if they, they even believe this is possible, right? I think they, they think so much of the country is so crazy, so racist, so xenophobic, so befuddled by Fox News that Maybe that's the best they can do is the Biden squeak through coalition. You know, I believe, and perhaps you believe, Chris, they could do a lot better than that. But in a way, they don't even believe in themselves. Yeah, I, th I think I think either of these parties uh, could, if they could be normal, right? If they could, if they could embrace normal behavior and appeal to the middle, there's a big majority waiting for either of these parties. So um, the before we, I, I want to take a deeper dive on Hispanic voters, but before that, mm -hmm. the current obsession in the Biden campaign and the Democratic Party is, what are we going to do about uh, sluggish black turnout? What are we going to do about disaffected black voters? Joe Biden, as much or more than any uh, Democrat that I can remember, has focused on black voters. He rewrote the Democratic primary calendar uh, so that he could suck up to black voters in South Carolina. Uh, he, he chose an African-American woman as his running mate. He has been um, explicitly, almost desperately focused on these voters that, uh, who don't seem to be responding. Now, I observe, thanks to uh, research provided to me by our colleague, Nate Moore, something interesting about the black vote in America, which is that for a long time, Republicans typically got double-digit black support. Uh, this I'm looking here, going back uh, to the 90s, the Republican share of the black vote was 12%, 10%, 12%, 11%. Um, and it was only under Obama and I think we saw some of this uh, with Hispanic voters as well. George W. Bush, I, I think, got better than 40 percent of Hispanic voters. Yeah, around 40. And mm -hmm. uh, then Obama and Trump, the, the combined effects of Obama and Trump 
you see these stratospheric numbers um, for non-white voters, particularly black voters for Democrats. Mm-hmm. Is it possible that what we're seeing among black voters is a return to a turn of the century, turn of this century um, attitude where Democrats are not are going to reliably lose 12 or so points of the black vote uh, to Republicans? Well, I certainly think we're probably returning to that kind of situation. I, but I think it can't be ruled out that we're you're sort of going to blow past that uh, to where Republicans could get like 15% of the black vote. It doesn't sound like a lot, but it is a lot in the context of American politics. Could be really important in a lot of states. So in other words, we could go from, you know, de- sort of Republican ceiling of, you know, 10 to 12 points to something in the mid-teens and maybe even past that. And if that happens, that's just a mega, a mega change. And for those people who don't think that's possible, I mean, you can look at the approval ratings of Biden among black voters under 50, according to Pew. I mean, it's like underwater by 20 points. I mean, this is like shocking for black voters. And some of those voters may very well wind up voting for, for Donald Trump. So, um, and content, you know, soon being ed- w- uh, willing to entertain Republican candidates the way the older black voters just simply aren't willing to do. So, uh, yeah, I think this is definitely uh, a sea change going on am- among black voters. It's not as marked and as obvious as among Hispanic voters. Um, but I think something is going on here. And I think the fundamental lesson here for the Democrats should be, you know, you're not identity politics of various flavors is not the way to reach these voters. Talking about them as people of color or BIPOC is not the way to reach these voters. Talking about communities of color is not the way to reach these voters. Talking endlessly about racism is not the way to reach these voters. What they want is a friggin' better life. Uh, And if Democrats can provide that upward mobility to these voters, uh, you know, a better life in material terms, um, can they, if they can uplift, say, the black working class in a way it hasn't been uplifted in the past. That's really the key. That's what they want. And they obviously don't trust the Republicans much on this score. But Republicans are going to keep making the case that they can do that. And Democrats just care about you know, their boutique issues and they care about the rhetoric they use in talking about you folks. We care about how we can actually make your life better. Um, and I think Democrats have really been, you know, so befuddled almost by, by the ideology they bought into. They're, they're not thinking realistically about who these voters are and what they really care about. And boy, is that ever obvious among Hispanic voters these days? I mean, it's been a disaster for Democrats to think of them as people of color and think of them as people who are fundamentally concerned about racism. That's just so far from the, the uh, reality of these voters. A last word on, uh, black voters. You uh, co-authored a piece in the fall that I think every Democrat ought to read talking about what's going on with younger black voters and relying on survey data. So the, the narrative among Democrats has been that the reason the party is struggling with younger black voters is because they are not, they're insufficiently woke and they are not addressing concerns about police brutality sufficiently, mass incarceration, talking about these issues. And certainly there is truth to that, that there are there is a constituency of younger 
more progressive uh, black Americans who think that the Democratic Party is a bunch of fogies and out of touch. But what struck me about the piece that you wrote and the data that you put forward, okay, a younger black American sour on the Democratic Party, and you divide out um, black voters ages 18 to 49 and black voters age 50 plus. Biden approval is 20 points lower uh, among younger black voters. You can say, okay, well, that's, uh, that, that could be liberals, right? That could be progressives. But then you go down to party identification. And this one really blew my mind. 78.3% of black voters age 50 and over identified as Democrats. It's 48.5% among younger black voters. 15.2% uh, of older black voters identified as independents. 40.8% of younger black voters. 6.4% uh, of older black voters said they were Republicans. It's 93 among younger black voters. So I think that is a great encapsulation of your point about where the energy is and the religious belief among Democrats, many Democrats, of thinking of black voters as monolithic and thinking of the threat to black voters, which, by the way, they hear from activists in their party constantly, which is we've got to move left on these cultural issues in order to uh, shore, up, shore up younger black voters. The data suggests that they are losing their hemorrhaging support among younger black voters, not to the left, but not just to the left, but also to these younger Democrats who are more inclined to be Republican and more inclined to be independents. Yes, that's right. And I think part of the reason why they're, they make this mistake of thinking that all of their problems uh, with these younger, for example, black voters is because they're not sufficiently and aggressively woken off or focused on police brutality or racism or what have you, is because that's what the activist groups tell them. I mean, John Judas and I, in our book, we talk about the shadow party, the penumbra of activist groups and foundations and intellectuals and good chunks of the media. Um, uh, they're all telling, they're all singing the same song. They're, they're endlessly covering uh, the ways in which this is a benighted racist country and that, uh, you know, that, that we're not being sufficiently vigilant about it and we're not being aggressive enough in confronting it. Um, that's what they're at. That's what the activist groups and associated sort of democratic friendly uh, organizations are telling them. But these people don't represent and don't speak for the median young black voter. They just don't. I mean, these are the people who get the foundation grants. Yes, these are people who are interviewed by the legacy media. These are the people who have very loud voices on social media. But that's really different than an ordinary black working class 40-year-old guy or gal. I mean, it just is. And, and the, 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 the sort of inability to understand this, this, this willful uh, you know, sort of attempt to, to interpret the the sort of fulminations of the uh, of these uh, activist groups, these spokespeople, these intellectuals, as representing the voice of the ordinary black voter, I think is just so foolish, and and so blind to the realities of the situation. But you know, I think to some extent, a lot of Democrats they live in a bubble. So those are the black voters they hear. Those voters, quote unquote, 
Those are the black voices they hear. They think that the feedback they're getting from that sector of sort of their party-associated groups, somehow they are translating the views of the black masses for them, which arguably is almost a little bit racist or something, right? I mean, those people... Certainly paternalistic. Certainly paternalistic. So, you know, there's a very simple way to, you know, really understand the voices of the people. You actually have to listen to the people. You have to dig down into the data. You have to have an open mind about what they're saying and how complicated their views are on issues like crime, on issues like immigration, on issues of racism, and what have you. I mean, just just listen to them. You know, just disregard the latest press release you got from, you know, whatever black activist group or liberal group that purports to speak to them. And instead, look at the data and just think about it logically. You know, just think about what the ordinary life is like for a working class person in this country, black, white, or polka dots. Try thinking about that. I mean, I don't want to get on my too much on my high horse here, but it really kind of annoys me when people, uh, Democrats, assume they, they really understand the lives of working class people when the, the, it turns out that what they listen to is anything but that. So if black voters are not as monolithic uh, as uh, Democrats have tended to think, the story with Hispanic voters is a steroidal, atomic-fueled version of that in which uh, Hispanic voters have proven, well, here, you, you cite in, in party identification, a 12-point net Democratic advantage on lean party identification. That's down 19 points from its recent high in 2021 and the lowest net advantage for Democrats among Hispanics since Gallup started interviewing in Spanish in 2011. So we stipulate the arguments that we've already discussed about working class and about all of those things. But it also strikes me that we have a long history in American politics of immigrant groups coming to the United States, being solidly democratic. And then as those voters acculturate and uh, have their effect on the culture and the culture has uh, its effect on them, that the salience of uh, ethnicity in partisanship declines over time. Is that happening too? I think so. Um, I mean, one way to think about this is with the way the immigrants groups start out in terms of their relationship to the political party system, is they may be in a situation where in a very real sense, I mean, one party is their friend, the other party is not. Um, And they therefore can have a very simple political interpretive scheme of dealing with things. The Democrats are friend, Republicans not. And for the groups that are coming into the electorate, getting a cult, as you say, becoming acculturated, this is a very simple way of dealing with things. And it's got a lot of truth to it, right? Over time, I think that wears off, that sort of visceral identification with one party, that party my friend, the other party not, it can break down over time and it becomes more of a a contested thing. Well, which party really is my friend, right? I can't just assume anymore that the Democrats are my friend in every respect. There's other things going on in the world. I'm more a part of America now. So I have to look at it as a not a, if not a jump ball at least something that's that's much more contested than it used to be i have to make an actual decision 
not just have a default option about which party to support. And that's an inevitable part of the rise of immigrant groups in America. That doesn't mean they automatically will become Republican. I mean, conceivably, Democrats can continue to dominate them over time, uh, but they have to make the case to those voters, right? It becomes less of a default option and more a matter of persuasion. And in a way, that gets us back to the earlier thing we were talking about, about mobilization versus persuasion. Democrats, because of their assumptions, for example, about Hispanics, have relied on a model that says, more Hispanics, that's great. We need more mobilization. We just need to get them to the polls. Uh, you know, uh, and if we do that, it's automatic. Well, it's not automatic. It becomes increasingly a matter of persuasion over time. So what the Democrats should be reading from the signals they're getting from the voting patterns and from the polls is we have much more of a persuasion job to do among these voters, these Hispanic voters. They're obviously not as convinced as they once were that they should automatically pull the lever for us. So we need to speak to their concerns and really understand their hesitations about us. There was a great article in Politico, Chris, I don't know if you saw it, about Hispanics in Pennsylvania, particularly to Hazleton in Luzerne County. And it was just remarkable the extent to which, A, there's been big shifts toward the Republican Party uh, in that area among those voters, and B, just listening to the voices of the people in, in that area. I mean, these are voters who Democrats basically have been taking for granted. But, you know, beneath the surface, you know, things are changing. Uh, these voters are much more open to appeals from the other party. Uh, and it's having an effect uh, in places like Pennsylvania and indeed all over the country. I use the example of uh, my grandfather, McCarthy, who was a first generation uh, Irish American whose parents had emigrated from Ireland and how he was a, he had three pictures hanging inside uh, the, the, in the doorway to his home. He had three pictures. He had the Pope, he had Franklin Roosevelt, and he had a picture of himself standing on the deck of the uh, uh, remade PT-109 in homage to JFK. Uh, he even wrote a letter to JFK when Kennedy was a senator to decry the fact that his daughter had married a Protestant uh, in my father. The journey from doctrinaire, absolute, you must be a Democrat if you're an Irish American, to my mother, who by the end of her life was a uh, Phyllis Schlafly uh, supporting absolute conservative Republican all the way live. And you can just see in the span of 50 years, basically, how one family goes from being uh, where their cultural ethnic heritage is closely tied to partisanship to my mother behaved like and like most uh, women, uh, affluent women living in suburbs. She tended to be Republican. She tended to be more conservative, regardless of whether she was born jo Joan Marie McCarthy. Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. 
book on the app and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast. Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast. Okay, so how much of this, and and I just would commend to everybody, we'll put in the show notes, um, your your great piece ab- about these trend lines. Democrats should, should look in despair uh, at your, the graphic visualization about what's happening with non-college voters of all races and ethnicities and what's going on should be very useful to them as they think about this stuff. But how much of this is that Joe Biden is old? Dude is old. Um, and is there, much as Obama had a, a, a positive but temporary effect uh, on these voters for Democrats that Joe Biden's extreme elderliness uh, has a negative but temporary effect. Yeah, well, I think there's. Uh, it's not exactly uh, <laughs> controversial at this point to say that Biden's age is not a point in his favor. In fact, it's uh, very much a debit for him. Um, I guess I I always hesitate though to ascribe all of the Democrats' problems and all of Biden's problems as a candidate to uh, the fact that he's you know, ostentatiously old and doesn't seem to be getting any younger. Um, <laughs> I think there's a lot more going on there. And it has to do with a lot of the things, Chris, we've been talking about in this this podcast in terms of the vulnerabilities of the Democrats and the ways in which people are just not happy with the way the Democrats have run the country and Democrats' inability to speak to that directly and effectively. Um, you know, in a way, one way to think about it is, yeah, he's an old dude, man, but why? why is he the guy who seems to be represent a kind of Democratic Party, at least in some respects, that people are comfortable with. How did he get to be the friggin' candidate in 2020? It was because all the other bozos were doing and saying things that obviously weren't, you know, a lot of people in the Democratic Party weren't even comfortable with, what much less the electorate as a whole. So, you know, they're stuck with the old guy, but partly they're stuck with the old guy because the party can't make up its mind that in a sense it wants to be the normie voter party. So Biden is sort of the the facsimile of that, that the Democrats can come up with at the current time. I mean, let's say you got rid of Joe Biden, who would, you know, replace him, Kamala Harris, you know, not a very strong candidate. Gavin Newsom desperately wants to be president, but is he a really good standard bearer for the Democratic Party? Would he make it into the normie voter party? Probably not. So I think, um, you know, Democrats can look at Biden and say he's really old, but you can also look at Biden and say, well, at least he's, you know, sort of in a halfway plausible way, uh, a normal, normie kind of guy who can appeal to normie voters. And he's not threatening. And he doesn't, even though his administration has done and said a lot of dumb things, um, you know, surely Biden doesn't believe all that nonsense. I mean, look at the kind of guy he is. So I think it cuts both ways in a bit. I, I, I tell people... Uh, Biden's um, infirmity is an amplifier. It turns up all the volumes on negatives, right? So whatever negative perceptions people have about Democrats, about the brand, 
Biden's infirmity is is just is plugging that into an amp and it sharpens and intensifies those things. But you are right. But it didn't but it didn't create those negative problems and perceptions. That's yes, right. Excellent way of putting it. You are absolutely right that it was non-white voters who made Joe Biden. Joe Biden definitely understands that it was non-white voters who made him the nominee and made him president. Um, and it was their rejection of I watching in 2020 the preposterousness of Democrats saying, well, what about the former mayor of South Bend, Indiana? What about what about Elizabeth Warren? And I'm like, do you guys know who your voters are? Do you know who the people that you need to go vote are? And it was a it was a great distillation of the way um, and many uh, other Democrats have talked about this. But the capture of the Democratic consciousness by a lot of very liberal, very young uh, progressives that captured the consciousness of the Democratic Party. And it was only thanks to Jim Clyburn and a lot of Democratic black women in South Carolina and on Super Tuesday states that said, yeah. you can't, yeah, you, you can't, can't be serious. You cannot be, you, you can't be serious. We'll take the we'll take Methuselah here uh, because we got to have somebody that seems normal and seems like they they might be able to beat Donald Trump. Um, okay, so if you could design for Democrats, if you could say if if your party said we're 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 listening, right? To if they they said if you if they all bought your book, uh, you and Judas's book, and they did it, what are the concrete steps? that they would take now, um, given who they have as their nominee, uh, given what's going on, what are the concrete steps that they would take uh, that would demonstrate that they were listening and could make an appeal to these voters? Okay. Now, do you mean that, Chris, in terms of like literally the situation we're in now, Biden-Trump matchup coming down the pike, what can you do to maximize your probability of winning? In 2024, do you mean it in a broader, longer-range sense? So that which are somewhat different questions. I mean today. Today, they call you up. You get the they, uh, the members of the DNC put you on a conference call, and they say, "Rui, what should we do? We don't know what to do. How? Do, what do we do? What would you tell them?" Well, I'd tell them, dudes, the progressive left is a paper tiger. Stop paying attention to what they're telling you to do. And and don't exactly do the opposite, perhaps, but just just put that aside and think about what you should be doing and saying to reach like normal middle of the road voters in this country who are persuadable, who may be thinking a little bit about Trump, but really don't like him. Uh, so to do that, hey, you need to get tougher on immigration. Yeah, you, the, the bill crashed and burned, but there's a lot of things Biden could do right now to deal with the border security problem. And he should talk do those things and talk about them ostentatiously, right? You know, you start, you could start talking about how you're going to be tough on crime, tough on the causes of crime. You're going to uh, put 100,000 cops on the street or whatever. I don't know. I mean, this is uh, above my pay grade exactly how to put stuff like this. But, you know, you got to start addressing your vulnerabilities in a way that assure people you understand what they're concerned about and you're going to do something about that. And you're going to start talking more about America, about how we're all in this together you know, black, white, they're going to go back to that Obama era rhetoric of, you know, there's no red American, blue America. There's just in a, you know, there's just the United States of America. There's no black America or white America. There's the United States of America. Really start striking those patriotic unifying themes 
that have historically worked the best for the Democrats. And let's not forget, Democrats have done the best overall when they are viewed as the party of the common man and woman, of the party of universal uplift, of the ordinary American. Ditch the equity stuff. Stop talking about things in those terms. Talk about how you're going to uplift everybody. And for God's sake, on this climate stuff, stop doing stuff like, you know, caving into Bill McKibben and the climate uh, lobby on LNG exports and start talking more about how what you're going to do is provide clean, abundant, reliable energy for everybody. And yes, eventually it'll be clean. We're going to have an energy transition. But above all, you're going to make sure that people keep their jobs and you're going to keep energy prices down. And you're just going to approach things in a way that keeps the material, everyday life of ordinary Americans front and center. You're not a radical. You don't want to change the country overnight. Um, you're going to do your best you can to make sure that everybody uh, you know, has as much opportunity as possible and as comfortable a life as possible. And it's those Republicans who want to take it away from you that we're going to stop that. But we are firmly middle of the road. We're firmly committed to the ordinary American. Uh, and, you know, <laughs> To repeat myself, don't pay attention to those people on the progressive left. Their prescriptions for what you should do and what you should say are almost invariably wrong and reflect their priorities and views, which are not the priorities and views of ordinary Americans. So if you're willing to do that and piss off some of the people in the party and on social media, I, I would say you would enhance your probability of winning in, in 2024. Uh, not that it'll be easy, but it will enhance your likelihood of winning. So that's my story. I'm sticking to it. <laughs> well, ladies and gentlemen, if anybody understands what it is to be part of a remnant, it is definitely Rui Teixeira. Uh, if, the, if the idea of this podcast is holding a light, holding space for ideas that make people uncomfortable uh, and holding out against the conventional wisdom, uh, my colleague, Rui Teixeira, is a gold star, triple A plus uh, remnant uh, member. And Rui, I'm so grateful that you made time for us today. Uh, I, I just, I, I will repeat it again. Everybody should be subscribed to the Liberal Patriot, whether you're a liberal or a conservative, a Democrat or a Republican. It's very useful, very helpful thinking. And the book is Where Have All the Democrats Gone?, uh, it is accessible for non-nerds, uh, but uh, richly and deeply researched to satisfy the deepest nerd uh, among all of you. Rui, thanks for being here so much. Hey, Chris, thanks for having me. A great conversation as always. And uh, <laughs> I guess we're uh, just fellow remnants here. We're, we're doing the best we can in today's America. Well, there you have it. It may be sun and fun for Jonah Goldberg, but it's a uh, wintry mix and deep dives on data uh, here on the remnant. We will we will stand fast uh, until our dear leader returns. Uh, thanks for hanging out, and until then, I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is my podcast. Have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. 
Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast.